0: Let me ask you to take your Bibles once again and turn with me to Luke's Gospel. Luke chapter 7. This morning we are in verses 18 to 35. Luke chapter 7, verses 18 to 35. So uh, just to sort of give you a heads up as to what's coming in the, the next several weeks, uh, we Next Sunday, obviously, is the first Sunday in May. Uh, it's the day following the Kentucky Derby, so there's that. Uh, we're going to be then in, we'll get to the end of uh, Luke 7. We will get into Luke 8. And then on the 21st and the 28th of May, uh, we're actually going to be out of town. We are in that phase in our lives in which when we travel now, it's we travel to go see our kids. And so Gabrielle is graduating from uh, the fellows program that she is in in Chattanooga. And then on Memorial Day weekend, uh, we're going to go see Nathaniel. Uh, he's gotten to the point where he can actually go off base and wear civilian clothes. And so uh, we, we can actually go see him. So we're going to do that. We're going to travel down to St. Angelo and see him over Memorial Day weekend. And so Isaac Terwilliger He's going to be uh, with us on the twenty first. Isaac is uh, the minister of youth and students at uh, Grace Chapel in Lincoln. He's been with us before, and then we'll see on the twenty eighth. We got a couple things going on. Uh, we uh, Andrew Leitner, who has been with us uh, several times. Uh, Andrew's dad is in really poor health, and so he's actually on Monday. He's flying to Pennsylvania to be with family. Uh, because they got a call that said, if you're going to be with your dad, you need to come. So he's going to be doing that. So uh, Andrew would love to be with you all on the 28th, but that is up in the air at the moment. And so we will see uh, how all that plays out in the Lord's providence and in his goodness uh, to his people. Uh, Thankfully, his parents are believers. And so while this is a sad thing, it's uh, it's not sad like it could be. And so we're grateful and thankful for that. Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 17 through verse 35. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, "'We played the flute for you, and you did not dance.'" We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Let's pray together. Father, now bless these moments, we ask For the sake of your great name, for the sake of your people, and for the building of your kingdom. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Do we know Jesus? It's the title of this morning's sermon. And it's a title that I borrowed slash stole from a book written by a German New Testament scholar named Adolf Schlatter. Now, if you've never heard of Schlatter, don't be too upset. Uh, lots of folks haven't. He taught at a place in Germany called Tübingen at the beginning of the 20th century. Schlauder. Uh, very few of his work has been translated into English. And interestingly, uh, towards the end of his life, after he had retired, schlaughter discovered one of those great joys of being old, and that was he just didn't care anymore. And so Schlotter, in his old age, as he wrote the book, Do We Know Jesus, did so at the time in which the Nazis were coming to power in Germany. You see, Schlotter understood that allegiance to the Fuhrer and allegiance to Jesus as King of Kings, Lord of Lords, those two things were absolutely incompatible. Interestingly, Adolf Schlauter died September 1st, 1939, which if you were a history teacher or a history buff, you know what happened on September 1st, 1939. World War II began. So Schlauder went to see Jesus just as the war was started. Well, in 1937, the first edition came out it immediately sold out. He printed a second edition. He actually died. He wasn't happy with the page proofs. He actually died with page proofs to the second edition uh, at the bedside of uh, the table near his bedside. But as he writes the introduction to the first edition, he asks this question, and then he gives this answer. He says, do we know Jesus? I know the answer for my own self is this. I don't know him well enough. I don't know him well enough. Well, the same could be said of John the Baptist in our text for this morning. John sends messengers to inquire as to whether or not Jesus is the one. And having come this far in Luke's gospel and having read Luke 1 and Luke 2, we have to ask ourselves, really? This is the one who leapt in his mother's womb when he heard Mary's voice. And he's the guy who has to send messengers to Jesus to inquire as to whether or not Jesus is the Messiah? If John doesn't know whether or not Jesus is the one, then who does? If John doesn't know Jesus, who could? Well, Luke helps us to know who Jesus is by mixing an interesting pronouncement, a discourse, and a parable in three scenes that all work together. You can't separate them. They all build off of one another. So let's look at the first scene. Uh, It's point number one in your bulletin. After we think about the big idea, which is this, God's Messiah and messenger are often misunderstood. See, it wasn't just Jesus that was misunderstood, as Jesus is going to point out to us. It's also God's messenger. It's John who is misunderstood. So first, uh, are we easily offended? Are we easily offended? In verses 18 to 23, Jesus quotes as he answers the question that John's disciples give him. He quotes from both Isaiah chapter 29 and Isaiah 35. In other words, Jesus is saying, hey, you want to know if I'm the one? Well, here are my credentials, and why don't you examine them in light of what the Bible says about who the Messiah was going to be. But it's interesting that in Jesus saying, I am the one who is fulfilling the Scripture, what the Scriptures expected from the Messiah and what Jews in Jesus' day expected from the Messiah we're not one and the same now certainly the jews would say oh we have these messianic expectations and they're guided they're driven by scripture we have these wonderful promises that yahweh has made to his people but the jewish conception of the messiah was very different from what jesus cites to john's disciples in verse 22 This is interesting, isn't it? Look with me if you would. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. Now, I don't know about you, but that list is a little strange. I might have started with the poor have good news preached to them and ended with the dead are being raised. Right, because after at the end of there, the dead are being raised. Because which one of those is most impressive? Not necessarily the poor having the good news preached to them, but hey, Jesus, you had a word, you can raise the dead. Like that's a great party trick. I'd end with that, but he doesn't. And none of these, to be clear, have anything to do with the Jewish popular conception of what the Messiah was going to be. In the Jewish mind, the substance, the great uh, thing that they were hoping for as it related to the Messiah, was the restoration of Israel. In other words, the Messiah was going to come. He was going to get rid of whatever foreign power was uh, bothering them at the moment, whatever foreign power had invaded them and was now occupying them, and he was going to restore the throne to Israel. In fact, so pervasive was that idea that we read at the end of Luke's gospel, we read in the beginning of the book of Acts, that Jesus' disciples, after he has been resurrected, ask him this question, hey, is now when you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? In other words, hey, this other stuff was cool. This other stuff was great. But now you're really going to do the Messiah work, right? Like, this wasn't really about you dying and being resurrected, because again, that's cool too. But this has really got to be about you restoring the kingdom to Israel. Uh, We have for several years uh, with our family, uh, whenever it's somebody's birthday, we go to one of the old Omaha steakhouses. So we've kind of made the rounds over the past 13 years or so and you know if you go to some of those old omaha steakhouses that uh when you order a steak then they say well there's a bunch of other stuff you can get with it right like do you want it blackened do you want sauteed mushrooms do you want onions do you want blue cheese crumbles and at that point you're going well if the steak's good why do i need all this other stuff now the blue cheese i'll take all day rest of it yeah probably not probably not so much And no one, I think, would walk into a steakhouse and go, hey, listen, uh, don't bring me the steak. Just bring me like blue cheese crumbles and grilled mushrooms and grilled. Like those people are called vegans and they shouldn't be in a steakhouse probably to begin with. Well, in the Jewish mind, the stake of Israel's messianic hope was the restoration of Israel all this other stuff that he's talked about in verse 22 all of that was just stuff you added on to the steak and so Jesus in verse 23 after he's just given them an answer that they did not expect in in essence it's almost it's kind of a non answer yeah 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 that's that's great yes yes i want blue cheese with my steak but what kind of steak are you going to give me Verse 23, here's the proverb, and blessed is the one who's not offended by me. In other words, are you going to let the Bible define the expectations of the Messiah? Or are you going to impose your own expectations on him? Because what happens quite easily is we have in our own minds how it is we think that Jesus is going to act how it is we think Jesus is going to operate, the kind of people that we think Jesus ought to save. And when Jesus doesn't act and behave and do and operate in in the way in which we think he ought to, how do we respond? What do we do? Now, it's one thing to say, hey, listen, uh, I'm not Jesus, but if I was, I seems like this course of action would be really good. It's at least an acknowledgment of the fact that, yeah, we're not in control. But I fear all too often, we get really offended when Jesus doesn't operate, when he doesn't do the things in which we think he ought to do. We make our own expectations the authority and not the word of God. Jesus is God's Messiah. And all that that entails is spelled out for us in the Old Testament. In fact, Jesus quotes not once but twice from the book of Isaiah in giving, as it were, his resume for being the one. And yet, he still has to end it by saying, Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Secondly, we need to embrace the paradox. We need to embrace the paradox. So the messengers leave. They have their non-answer. They're going to go back to John, and they're going to kind of suss this thing out and try to figure out what it is that Jesus is actually saying. And so Jesus takes that opportunity to then turn to the crowds and ask them about their ideas related to John the Baptist. And so he says in verse 24, What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, and I tell you, more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. So not only is Jesus God's Messiah, but the Messiah tells us that John is God's long-awaited messenger. The Old Testament speaks of a messenger who's going to come before the Messiah. He's going to prepare the way. And indeed, Jesus says, listen, when you are looking for the guy, the guy who's going to prepare the way for the Messiah, John is that guy. He's the one. And then in verse 28, he tells us something that leaves us scratching our head. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Well, What does that even mean? How can there be no one greater than he born of a woman? And yet he's uh, the one who is least in the kingdom of God, is greater than he is. What, What is Jesus talking about? Well, as usual, we have options. And scholars disagree about the options. Some will say, what's going on here, what's important, is that phrase, born of a woman, over and against being born of the Spirit. Remember, Jesus has already told Nicodemus in John's Gospel That to enter into the kingdom of God, you must be born again. You must be born of water and spirit. So, is he saying here that of the uh, sort of uh, non saved folks, John is the greatest of the non saved people versus those who have been born again? And you go, well, that doesn't really make any sense because we would all hope (laughs) that John has been born again. We would hope that when we get to heaven, John's one of the people we can sit and have lunch with or go play golf with. So what if he's talking about something else, not necessarily born of a woman versus born of the Spirit. What if he's talking about the age that's looking forward to the coming of the kingdom versus the kingdom? John is indeed the last of the prophets. John is declaring that God's kingdom is coming But when Jesus comes and begins to teach, he doesn't say that the kingdom of God is coming. He says that the kingdom of God is here. In fact, in the coming of of the Messiah, in the coming of God's king, means that the kingdom is here. So he's talking about the difference between the old age... Versus the coming kingdom. He's talking about the folks who are looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. Versus those who have actually seen the Messiah. He's talking about the difference between trusting in what it is that God will do. Over and against trusting in what it is that God has done. And is doing. But then it's interesting, isn't it? As a kind of parentheses, in fact, in the ESV, it is in the parentheses in verses 29 and 30. Luke tells us that even the ministry of the forerunner is misunderstood. That even though the tax collectors and the people are declaring God just because they've been they've undergone John's baptism of repentance. In verse 30, we're told the Pharisees and the lawyers, or the Pharisees and the scribes, rejected not John's baptism, but nobody says the purpose of God for themselves. We're presented with a really interesting question Am I going to side with God's purposes, or am I going to seek to justify myself? Am I going to seek God's purposes? Or am I going to seek to justify myself? Remember, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. So the person who underwent that baptism was saying publicly and identifying publicly for everybody and their grandmother to see I am a sinner. I need to be cleansed. I need to be washed the crowds and the tax collectors were like yep i'm that person i'm he i'm she but the scribes and the pharisees <laughs> we're not sinners wait a minute we broke the law dude we wrote the law all those silly things that you can and can't do related to the sabbath all those things that you can or can't do related to work, all the stipulations and all the spin around divorce and all the other things that were part and parcel of religious life in Israel, these are the people who wrote it. So to undergo John's baptism, they would have had to admit publicly, yes, we were wrong. We were wrong. We're sinners. And so part of embracing this paradox of life in God's kingdom means that we only enter in when we can say, when we begin to say, we come in by acknowledging that we're sinful. It's a kingdom of people who acknowledge they're not really even worthy to be there. They have no right to be there. So it's not a kingdom filled up with people who are like, Hey, I got my act together Therefore, God loves me. You should get your act together too. No, these are people who are saying, we have been saved by grace through faith. What are we willing to acknowledge publicly? That we're sinners. That we failed. That we are in need of a Savior. Finally then, Jesus ends all of this conversation, so they misunderstand the Messiah, they misunderstand his messenger, and because of that, then he's going to tell a parable. Now parables typically are meant to clarify what's going on, but sometimes parables leave us with this question in our head that just won't get out. Right? It's like the tune of a Rick Astley song. You get it in there and it's not going to leave. So you're welcome that all day you're going to be Rick rolled in your head. Well, that's the idea that's going on with a parable. This parable is there to stick and kind of roll around and rattle around a little bit. So Jesus says, to what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? In other words, these are folks who they don't get the Messiah, And they don't get God's messenger. God's kingdom is at hand. The messenger is pronouncing, prepare for it. The Messiah is saying it's here. And what are these people doing? Short answer, they're missing it. Verse 32. They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. Okay. Jesus, we don't get kids' rhymes, right? This is this is not Mother Goose. So he explains, For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. What's the matter with John? Well, John doesn't, John just, you know, He doesn't eat bread. He doesn't drink wine. Clearly, he's demonic. What's the matter with the Messiah? Well, he's eating and drinking. Clearly, he's a drunkard. Clearly, he's a glutton. Huh. So God's messenger is flawed. Yes. God's Messiah is flawed. Yes. Yes. That's the answer that that generation was giving. They're presented with John's baptism. And as as Luke points out, no, they're going to reject the purposes of God for themselves. God's Messiah comes and says the kingdom of God is at hand. And they say, "Mm, no, you're a drunken and a glutton and a drunkard. And so Jesus then uses that wonderful conjunction in verse 35. Did you see it? Yet. Yet. What's the common consensus about God's messenger? Clearly he has a demon. What's the common consensus about God's Messiah? He's a glutton and a drunkard. And Jesus says, hmm, Wisdom is justified by all her children. Wisdom is justified by all her children. And you go, Well, what does that even mean? Well, keep your finger in Luke chapter 7, but turn over with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians. For in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul, uh, shockingly enough, has to defend his ministry. Paul spends lots of time defending his ministry, which is absolutely aggravating. But in uh, chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, beginning in verse 18, as Paul defends his ministry, one of the things he's going to do is he's going to defend his preaching. Because for the Apostle Paul, what was central to his ministry, it wasn't healing people and doing all the cool tricks that we read about in the book of Acts. What was central for the Apostle Paul was the proclamation of the gospel. So here's what he says. The word of the cross is folly, foolishness. than men. When Jesus gives the parable and ends with wisdom is justified by her children, the Apostle Paul takes that and when he's defending his ministry, he says, hey, listen, the gospel, this whole thing about Jesus, yeah, it's kind of nuts, isn't it? If you're a Greek, you don't get it. If you're a Jew, you're offended by it. It's a stumbling block. It's foolishness. But understand that God is doing his redemptive work, not through the wisdom of the world, not through the common consensus of the world, but God is doing his work via his wisdom. God is demonstrating his power. And I love how he puts it, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. That's that's the answer. What's God's wisdom? Christ. The world thinks it's the dumbest answer they've ever heard. They're offended by it, or they just don't get it. I love what we were singing, and I, I, I hadn't thought about this, but there was a line in the last song we sang in which we said, You count it strange, so once did I. And that's what Jesus is saying. If you're in the kingdom, this wisdom of God, it was once really strange. It was once foolishness. But now you understand in the foolishness of the gospel, the wisdom of God has been made known. And Christ is the power of God. He's the wisdom of God. We've said, as we've made our way through Luke's gospel, that the melodic line or the thing that, that holds it all together is that the gospel is for everyone. The gospel is for everyone. Now, that needs a little bit of clarification because it doesn't mean that we're universalists. It doesn't mean that we believe that everyone everywhere is saved just by virtue of the fact that they're a human being. So when we say that the gospel is for everyone, we don't mean that everyone everywhere is saved. But what we do mean is this. The gospel is for everyone regardless of nationality or gender or class or orientation or pronouns or lack of pronouns or however it is that you want to state it. The gospel is the power of God to save. Full stop. But that doesn't mean that everybody just gets in. No, you have to embrace the wisdom of God. And this morning, as we come to the Lord's table, God in his wisdom is inviting you to embrace the folly, to embrace the foolishness of a crucified Messiah. He's inviting you not on the basis of common consensus, but on the basis of his wisdom, that it's through the broken body of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, that God's power and God's wisdom are made known. It's easy to misunderstand God's messenger. It's easy to misunderstand God's Messiah. But God, who shows his power in weakness, invites us this morning to come to the table. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that the Lord Jesus was not the manifestation of human wisdom or common consensus, but that Jesus is both the power and the wisdom of God. We pray these things now in his name. Amen.